Hello, I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. This podcast is brought to you by RAIN Worldview, the premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Find out how RAIN can help you stay ahead of global events at rainnetwork.com. Ten years ago, yes, this was rocket science. Today, doing these genetic manipulations is not that hard. So the fear is that in labs, if they're not receiving federal or other governmental funding, there there isn't any control on it. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for tuning in. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we brought you a weekly podcast debunking misinformation and sharing best practices from two of the world's leading infectious disease experts. Dr. Bill Lang and Dr. Fred Southwick. The pandemic is not over, but it certainly raised people's awareness of infectious diseases and also the hunger for information about emerging diseases. So this podcast is looking beyond COVID to update you on the new and the next emerging infectious diseases and what businesses should know. Let's listen to today's podcast. Fred and Bill, uh, once again, thanks for spending some time uh, with us. Uh, there have been a number of headlines just in the last few days about uh, the variants of uh, COVID, um, and these are in receiving some prominent media coverage. Washington Post, for example, uh, Axios, NPR has been playing this up. Uh, what can you tell us, and I know we've, we've shared uh, between ourselves, uh, in, you know, in, in advance of this podcast, uh, but what should we be thinking about? What can you share with us so we can separate maybe you know the fact from the fiction and uh, separate you know uh, undue alarm? Well, David, what the Washington Post article got to, and actually, and they're not the only source, as you said. There have been a lot of saying this is that there is a high risk for new variants over the course of the winter that are going to cause either increased uh, severity of disease or increased escape from immunity. Now, even when you read through that, though, it's unclear what they're basing that on other than just, well, we haven't had a lot of of variants for a long time, so we're we're bound to get them. Um, It it really comes across to me more of a... um, you know, this could happen, so you really need to take care, and you sh- you've got to go get your vaccination. And this goes along with the, the CDC push for uh, getting the additional booster, push for getting the additional, for getting vaccinated in the first place, because the U.S. continues to have just about the lowest vaccination rate of the entire economically developed world. We're running at 60, uh, 68%. The average around the world for the economically developed nations is closer to 80%. Um, Only 50% of those who are uh, eligible for a uh, booster have gotten a booster. And only 5% of those who are eligible for the new updated Omicron uh, uh, booster are eligible for that. So I think that some of this this hype that we're seeing about the new variants, while probably true, we probably will see a few more variants, but the hype that, that these are going to cause huge new outbreaks is just that. It's hype designed to push the vaccine. Problem is the following. This virus reproduces its RNA inaccurately. 
In other words, it makes frequent mistakes. And those mutations or changes uh, most of the time will not have any effect on the ability of the virus to spread or to cause disease. But every now and then there is a mutation that does serve, it does prove to be advantageous. That is, it, they, particularly it will spread more easily. And there are certain regions of the spike protein that seem to be most important as far as affecting contagiousness. And those particular amino acids, uh, I don't need to go into them, but there are specific ones. And it does seem that many of the uh, mutant strains that are being described have mutations in these specific sites that enhance their function. So uh, it makes sense that these variants would be uh, presenting themselves. Whether they will be a strong enough advantage to beat out BA5 and BA4 isn't really clear right now. Uh, there is a suggestion at the CDC mentioned that there is a, a variant. Again, these are all uh, Omicron variants. Uh, there is a BQ1 and a BQ1.1 that now have grown to represent 11% of the virus uh, strains causing infections in the United States. You know, when we get up to 11%, it does raise concerns that this could become the new dominant strain. The problem we have is that most people have not received the bivalent uh, booster. That is the, the booster that has the Omicron variant BA5 in, uh, sequence in it, as well as the wild type sequence. That is likely to be protective for almost all of these variants. And this, this evidence of some new variants coming up and becoming more prominent should uh, encourage everyone uh, that is eligible to get the bivalent booster. And that wasn't the only sensational reporting that we were having. And just I agree that I think the booster is uh, useful for everyone. But that's not the only uh, sensational reporting. Over the weekend, there was a report about uh, um, in Singapore, a new a, was characterized as a new strain XBB is causing huge numbers of hospitalizations and deaths in Singapore. The Singaporean government actually came out with a clarification um, on Monday and said, number one, XBB is just uh, BA 5. I'm sorry, BA 2.1. It's something that we've had experience with over several months and it is not causing a huge outbreak. They have not had significant increased numbers. They did have one small outbreak that was event-driven, not uh, variant-driven. Uh, so between the between those, they said this has not been uh, this big sensational, and they actually accused the media of trying to trying to create sensationalism. So XBB is not a nightmare variant by any by any stretch. It is something that we uh, it's a small variation of BA two point one, and it's otherwise something we know about. Well, what's interesting, uh, I think uh, our last podcast was a, a little bit more than two weeks ago, uh, but you, we were specifically discussing the data that was coming from Europe and uh, how to interpret it and reasons not to be alarmed. And then all of a sudden these headlines broke. And I recognize there's a bit of piling on that goes on with the media. And, and certainly it's 
Um, these are attractive headlines for people to click and, you know, advertisers to, you know, attach advertisements to. But what is the, um, you know, certainly, it's interesting, a lot of this seems to be coming out of Washington. I don't, I don't want to say predominantly, but I, I do note that Axios and Hill, The Hill and uh, The Washington Post uh, seem to lead um, some of these stories. What is the data from Europe actually telling us now? Uh, and I know the last time, you know, we, we spoke was about two weeks ago. Is there anything new? The, the uh, as of Monday, which I, I have not, I didn't relook at it again yesterday or today. As of Monday, the ECDC, the European CDC, was still tracking BA5 as far and away the driver of the largest number of cases, and they were not even tr not even reached the level of needing to track. Um, these XBB, BQ 1.1 or BA 2.75.2. It was BA5 and, and BA5 minor variants that were driving this um, and not new, new major variants. Uh, and then when you go around the world, you see that over the last week, Cases are up very, very slightly on a worldwide basis, to the, and even within the within the um, the range of error, since we don't really know what the total number of cases are. So it's essentially flat, but it's not it's not continuing down. But the the major hot spots in the world are clearly uh, Central Euro European countries, um, and even most of them have looked like they're starting to turn down. Um, little unclear. Still watching them very very closely. But the places that were hot spots uh, as recently as three weeks ago, which was Asia, probably actually even the last time we talked, that Asian hot spots, which included Japan, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, um, case numbers have turned turned down there. The rate of increase has turned down dramatically there. Um, and the only it's really only Taiwan that is still seeing the very high numbers of cases. Um, Japan and South Korea have moderated to a great extent. Because of the inaccuracy of the RNA reproduction, uh, there is always going to be concern about a variant. And I do, I agree with Bill. I think there has been some sensationalization. Um, and in academic centers, uh, we aren't too concerned yet. But because of this uh unreliability and this ability to adapt to the vaccinations, uh, there is a potential concern. It's maybe not as as dangerous as been uh, promoted by the press, but I think this, this is a realistic concern. And the fact that there's a, one variant that's at 11% is getting up there. When it gets to 20, 30, 40%, we'll really have to worry more about the, those variants. But I I do think that, remember, the BA5 escapes, we've seen in the elderly, the BA5 escapes uh, the standard immunization. And that's why I, I strongly recommend that everyone who is eligible should get the bivalent vaccine so that we do reduce the spread of BA5 and other variants, uh, of Omicron variants, which were not covered by the original vaccines. So let me, uh, I love to underscore uh, sort of the counsel that you guys give. One, people should maintain um, the protocols of getting a booster vaccine when uh, 
when the time comes. Um, those who have access to the bivalent should certainly take advantage of it. There's no reason not to from a safety standpoint. And in fact, um, I'm hearing you very ardently, both of you, uh, urge people to do that. Uh, third, um, you continue to monitor the data from around the world, and obviously things can change and change quickly. And to that end, uh, I don't want to go down a geopolitical rabbit hole, but it is interesting, um, and we have a number of clients of RAIN who obviously have significant activities in China, and uh, a lot of listeners to the podcast have actually asked about this, but the data out of China, which continues to be you know, in lockdown mode and recognizing they you know, have some very important meetings uh, that are attracting a lot of attention, the People's Congress, etc. Uh, is there anything that you guys are either interpreting or I'll even use intuiting uh, from what's happening in China um, as a result of uh, infection rates, their approach to this, and the possibility of other variants emerging. China is a, a very large population, and the fear of, of one variant taking over and causing massive hospitalizations, uh, China can't really not, cannot afford that. And therefore, they have been extremely conservative and have used uh, um, methods, uh, masks, and uh, social isolation, uh, distancing, and avoiding public uh, events uh, more so than any other country. And uh, I know they're criticized because it has interfered with their economic activity, but they have so much to lose if they, because they're very crowded. The spread would be very, very fast. So I can understand their response to some extent. We're at the other extreme uh, we don't want any masks. We don't want any uh, uh, social distancing. Uh, we want to gather in as large groups as we possibly can. And I think this does lead us to uh, more deaths and more severe hospitalizations. And we do lead the world in the number of deaths. And that's one of the reasons. So there needs to be a balance between the U.S., which is too far uh, in the freedom end, and China, which may be uh, overly strict with regards to isolation and masks, etc. Yeah, China's only reporting several hundred cases per day. And as as you alluded to, the, their approach when they have a case, they'll shut down everywhere that is affiliated with that case, from neighborhoods to businesses to malls. Um, and it is having a huge impact on um, economic activity. But... Um, as Fred said, the the problem there is, especially as we have learned that vaccines only have a, a shelf life, so to speak, um, once they're injected of about you know, th three to six months, somewhere in there, uh, before they are not very effective against infection. They're still effective against preventing serious disease and death, but they are not very effective after three to six months in preventing uh, mild infections. But mild infections can still lead to transmission. And so I think the Chinese are afraid that they could not bring new vaccines and, and even boosters 
online fast enough, given the size of their population, that if a major outbreak started, they could kind of get ahead of it, as we would in the US. And if they got into the situation where you have you have massive widespread infections of significantly undervaccinated people, they would have millions of deaths. Um, at this point in the US, you know, as Fred said, we didn't lock down. So we had these massive widespread inf infections affecting immune naive people. And we did have lots of deaths. Well, now we've, we didn't do exactly what the Great Barrington Declaration said, which was basically let it rip. Um, but in essence, we have now a population that has probably 80% of the population has some degree of immunity. It may not be perfect immunity, but it is probably fair immunity against serious disease and death. Plus then we've got, we've got a reasonable amount of even those other 20% that are vaccinated to some point. So while we may never reach herd immunity, We've reached a point at which we are relatively protected and we can have relatively normal um, economic activity in the country. David, one of the things that I did was I looked at what are the main reasons why conventional reason says that we will have an increase in case numbers over these upcoming indoor months. And five quick reasons. One, it's colder weather pushes people indoors. Once you get indoor increased densities, that gives more more chance to uh, to share virus. Um, the second is that cooler, drier air associated with winter is more conducive to prolonged suspension of these aerosolized viral particles. So as you're getting more people together, the virus can actually stay in the air longer in a cool, dry room than it will would in a typical summer environment. So more people and more virus at the same time. Um, as as Fred has, has noted, people have dropped the use of personal protective measures and personal protective strategies. Um, this sense that we have had no new major variant just ra raises people's fear that we're due. We're due for another, another not just another number variant, but a, a whole new uh, Greek letter variant. There's no evidence that that's going to happen, but there's this fear that because it's been so long, we're due for it. And then the, the final of the five is that the original vaccinations are no longer significantly protective against the symptomatic mild infections. And we've had such a low rate of, of boosters. So those are the four reasons why the conventional, or five reasons why the conventional wisdom is that we're going to have a bad winter. Understood. Um, I'm going to ask you guys to maybe give a quick primer on a, a couple of things, which is up until two and a half years ago, we weren't dealing with any of this. And um, why does this virus continue to, I'll, I'll use a, I guess a, a layman's term, mutate. But but I think the, the notion here is that it, it does evolve and does respond uh, to sort of survive and, and maybe even thrive in additional environments. And, and Fred, maybe you can sort of explain how this, how this is um, and, and how people need to think about it. Well, the virus is actually obeying survival of the fittest, the Darwin uh, original theory, and that if a mutation 
uh, renders the virus more capable of binding to the receptor sites, uh, it's able, a lower concentration of the virus can cause symptomatic infection. And what we've seen as the, as the variants have progressed is it has become more and more contagious. That is, one person originally could infect two to 2.5 people, then it got up to three to th three to five people, and now it's at 10 to 15 people uh, or one person can infect. So it has uh, gained a function, it's gained the ability to be contagious. And now the other uh, advantageous change that's occurring is actually avoiding the immune response that is present at, uh, in the population. And some of the variants of the Omicron have changed the proteins and the spike, uh, the spike proteins confirmation and what is seen by antibodies to extent that it actually is ev avoiding or ev evading the immune response from uh, the various vaccines. And that's why everybody needs to get the bivalent vaccine, which actually is has a different uh, stimulus, which is more similar to these variants that are now uh, starting to circulate. So uh, those are the two major ways that one virus takes over from the others. It either is more contagious uh, or it's able to evade the, immune, the immunity uh, that is present in the population at this time. So those are the two worries. Now, the more, more people are vaccinated, the less the virus will circulate, the less likely they are to select for these new gain-of-function mutants. So I think the name of the game is to get everyone uh, that, that is eligible to uh, accept and get the vaccine. Right. And without being too simplistic, Fred, I don't want to insult your and Bill's uh, background, but maybe um, a way for people to think about this is that this, these are living organisms that are looking for places to live and to thrive and to, uh, and to spread. And what you're suggesting is between vaccines and protective equipment, those are the barriers to, uh, to nature, uh, the natural evolution of the virus. No, I, I, I agree with that, and Bill can comment as well. Uh, but and, and that's the other, remember we've talked uh, ad infinitum about the Swiss cheese model. And so we shouldn't just depend on the vaccine. We should use masks in public spaces. Uh, it, it's no, that's, there's no cost to using masks. And, and I think when, in, when there's any increased activity, everybody should wear a mask for a while. And uh, I think the one area that's a big problem is large gatherings. And we all enjoy uh, gathering in big crowds for concerts and other big events, and they're a lot of fun. Uh, but if the activity goes up, I think we have to step back again and be cautious. Well, welcome. Uh, the NBA season kicked off last night, Fred. So, uh, you know, it's arena time. Um, we have a few minutes left, and I wanted to get Bill's view. We were exchanging uh, some messages during the week. And um, Bill referenced, and Fred, you may very well be aware of this, but Boston University was able to do a uh, fairly simple gain-of-function modification to the virus that 
apparently could create an apparently much more virulent version. And this brings up the potential for um, bioweaponry, human manipulation, etc. And so, uh, and I'm, Fred, you use the term gain of function. Maybe uh, we'll take a step back. Bill, can you just sort of define that term very simply f- uh, for the audience and explain sort of the BU um, experiment and what your takeaway is um, from it? And obviously, Fred, would love to get your comments as well. Sure. Well, what BU was doing was exactly what many believers many people believe that Wuhan University did. You you do minor manipulations of the genetic code for the virus that cause uh, geometric changes to the surface of the virus that either affect infectivity or cause the virus to have a greater uh, detrimental effect on the infected uh, person. So that's the gain-of-function research, externally creating um, genetic modifications that modify either the infectivity or the severity of the uh, effects of the virus. So what went on at BU was they were doing fairly typical research of doing gain-of-function research. They happened to be doing it, though, on the... um, uh, COVID virus, uh, SARS-CoV-2, and this was picked up by Daily British Daily Mail. Um, that they noted in a report from this that it caused an eighty percent kill rate. Well, the point is it created an eighty percent kill rate in mice, um, and this virus tends to be very to kill a lot of mice in the first place. So BU is as in the past forty-eight hours has been pushing back very strongly against that, saying, look, that is a mice rate that has nothing to do with the effect in humans. Um, Somewhat obfuscating the fact that, yeah, they're continuing to do gain-of-function research, though. Um, And so it's creating, again, a a large amount of concern uh, in in politics and in the academic community about how much should we be supporting or even allowing a gain-of-function research on potentially deadly pathogens, such as SARS-CoV-2. And, you know, again, uh, Fred, please jump in, uh, but reminding the audience, Wuhan lab was viewed as ground zero for, um, for the virus and a fair amount of speculation and, uh, about whether uh, this was created in a lab or whether it was naturally occurring uh, from the wet markets in China, et cetera, still, I guess, something that, you know, has not been resolved to the satisfaction of, of many people. Uh, but what I'm hearing also from this, and Fred, your academic background and your involvement with, um, you know, basically medical research, is that there currently aren't any rules that are governing this type of research, which, you know, potentially has high impact consequences, um, unintended consequences, or maybe even intended uh, by some uh, labs. But right now there is nothing that oversees gain-of-function research in the labs uh, covering viruses. Am I hearing that correctly, guys? 
I think it's important to do this research uh, because uh, if we can figure out what what steps lead to this um, to a gain of function, then we can create predictive models which can be applied to natural gain of functions and predict what's going to happen when if this particular strain does spread. So I I, I don't not doing the research um, is a mistake. Now it's very important that infection control and isolation uh, be, uh, be very, very careful in those places and they should be BL3 or BL4 uh, level of containment. That That's the important part. But I, I think it would be a mistake to forbid gain-of-function uh, mutation research. Yeah, by the way, I wasn't suggesting that. I was just trying to point out uh, from what I've read and what I'm hearing from uh, Bill, that there are no global standards around this or global controls uh, around this. Um, so like many innovative um, technologies, um, an issue to be addressed. Uh, it worth clearly worthwhile research, Fred, but, um, but what I'm also hearing from you is that sort of the appropriate standards, controls, oversight have, uh, of such research have yet to be uh, fully enacted, no less implemented. Well, and, and David, the controls tends to be whoever's funding it controls it. Um, and the problem is that it's, it is not rocket science type of manipulation. I mean, 10 years ago, yes, this was rocket science. Today, doing these genetic manipulations is not that hard. So the fear is that in, in labs that are, if they're not being receiving federal or other governmental funding, there, there isn't any control on it. They just they do research on it like they do any other biochemical research. All right. Well, guys, thank you. Uh, a topic to be explored because we are going into the new and the next and lessons learned uh, from uh, the pandemic. I appreciate the fact that not only are you continuing to watch the data, but share the insights and, and share sort of very calm and reasoned uh, analysis. Uh, I will conclude, if I can channel both of you, uh, is uh, people should not for, forget not only the, you know, the various vaccines that are available to them and take advantage of it, uh, which also includes the flu shot. Is that correct? Particularly, Fred, I know you are uh, keen on that. And uh, people, some respected medical experts are out there beating the drum and talking about a potentially virulent uh, flu season. So hopefully the audience hears that as a continuing message. David, actually, I, whenever I do this with groups, I make the point that the evidence that we are going to have a bad flu season is actually better than the circumstantial evidence that we, we could have a bad COVID season. And flu, we know we can have a huge impact on by getting the flu shot. So I encourage everybody to go out and get a flu shot. And in fact, CDC just announced this week that we've just, well, I guess last Thursday, that we have seen flu rates um, in the surveillance laboratory system that have just gone above the baseline. And that is the traditional um, sign that we have entered flu season. And this is five weeks earlier 
than we had seen in most flu seasons prior to COVID. So not including just the last two years, but in seasons prior to COVID. So the evidence is looking like unless we have a very high flu vaccination rate, we're going to have a bad flu season. I usually put off my flu, flu shot until the middle week of, our, of October, and that's what I've done. I'm getting my flu shot, I believe, this evening on my way home. I'm planning to get my flu shot, too, very shortly. Okay, don't ask. completely. Don't ask the experts what you should do. Ask the experts what they are doing. Thank you for stepping forward. And Fred, I'll channel you uh, in, in uh, the conclusion here, which is that uh, mask wearing is not just a potentially prudent exercise uh, around COVID, but can also be helpful when you're traveling um, and large crowds uh, during flu season as well. Uh, so I assume that that advice applies to influenza. Absolutely. Okay. And the other good thing I can point out, David, because I always wear a mask, I am not feeling any uh, social, um, negative social impact from doing that. People, I think, accept some people are wearing masks and some are not. So don't be embarrassed by wearing a mask. Okay. It could save your life. Well, Fred, I particularly appreciate that to remind the audience. Bill, thank you so much. Uh, for your thoughtfulness, your care, your continued monitoring, and look forward to reconvening in a couple of weeks. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents. David Lawrence is the founder of RAIN. And RAIN is a risk intelligence company that provides access to critical insights, analysis, and support to ensure business continuity and resiliency for our members. Learn about RAIN's market-leading risk intelligence products at RAINnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. And thank you for listening. <music>